Yoshi, hi. Hello. I was walking through your favourite part of the world at the weekend. Picking at the gardens. <laughs> and walked through, uh, walked past the platform that has been hotly discussed on this podcast. Yeah. It had a gazebo on it and, um, and a bar and a cocktail bar. It was being used for something. What was it being used for? Just, just uh, the odd, the odd pe- person buying a drink. It was absolutely hammering it down. There was nobody to be seen. <laughs> there was one of those sort of security guys who was hanging around outside, and that was pretty much it. Well, yeah, I've heard it was used for the uh, jubilee. Delighted about that, and we, that was included within the eighty percent not used for the year. <laughs> so I don't change. I haven't changed my position. So now it's going to be closed again until the end of the year. Yeah, it'll be, changed, it'll be closed again until some ludicrous two-day event that no one goes to. Yeah, <laughs> good to keep an eye on it though. See. Proper journalism there for you. Uh, This is the Manchester Weekly from the mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris and Yoshi Herman is the editor of the Mill, Manchester's quality newspaper delivered by email. Hello, Yoshi. Hello. We're both very pretty in pink. Yeah, we are. This week. Pink t-shirts. We need to call ahead, I think, and (laughs) arrange what we're going to wear. We're in a visual (laughs) studio, but we actually don't video, so all good. Yes, exactly. We dodged a bullet there, I think, with these cameras turned off. Uh, It's going to be a heck of a week in Manchester, heck of a weekend in Manchester this weekend. There is, I think think on literally just the Saturday, we are expecting 200,000 people to descend on the city at various different events. Some real big concerts and gigs Mm. happening over the weekend. It's going to be a proper festival uh, in the city this weekend. We'll get into that in a sec and we'll, uh, we'll find out what's going on for you. Firstly, uh, we have to start in Westminster. All eyes on Westminster again this week. Uh, a confidence vote was called in the Prime Minister after enough Tory MPs handed their letters into uh, another Greater Manchester MP, Graham Brady, chair of the 1922 committee. Berry North's James Daly announced that he was back in the Prime Minister in spite of his slender majority in that constituency. Hazel Grove's William Ragg was one of those who submitted a letter to the 1922 committee, so you have to assume that he voted uh, no confidence in the Prime Minister. And Bolton West's Chris Green kept his cards close to his chest and refused to say. So, what's going on? What's happening? on the streets of Greater Manchester and how do people feel about the drama in Westminster? Let's speak to Chris Curtis, who is the head of political polling at Opinion Research and joins us now for a view of the sentiment in the north. And Chris, you've had your ear to the ground on this, haven't you, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, what are people thinking and feeling? The polling results that we've got so far has said this sort of big, dramatic Westminster week really hasn't had very much of an impact. And I think the reason for that is the public made up their mind about the Prime Minister quite some time ago. They all decided that he broke rules during Partygate. They all decided that he was lying about what was going on. And they're telling us that they sort of trust him a lot less because of it. And, you know, when we look at the Prime Minister's approval ratings and when we've looked at the Prime Minister's approval ratings at every point since January, they've said the same thing, which is... The public don't like him. He no longer looks like the kind of election winner that delivered that landslide victory in 2019. And I think that does put the Conservative Party in an incredibly difficult situation. Because on the one hand, you've got a prime minister with the kind of approval ratings that it's incredibly hard to come back from. But on the other hand, you've got a prime minister who's just survived a, a confidence vote and at least for a few months isn't going anywhere. And I think, you know, given that we're facing such a difficult cost of living crisis, given the problems that uh, the economy are facing, to have the, the governing party in the UK stagnating in such a way, I think is sort of a, a, an incredibly, incredibly difficult situation. And Chris, in a lot of the coverage of the Westminster drama this week, 
there has been a tendency to talk about the red wall. What are people in the red wall thinking? Could it, you've got kind of lots of MPs wondering, will our majority disappear because people in the red wall are angry with Boris? Tell me, do people in the red wall or do people in these formerly um, safe Labour seats that weren't Conservative in 2019, do they see things differently? Are you seeing discernible differences in the way that those voters see Partygate or anything else? I mean, no, not really. I mean, between 2015 and 2019, there was a big realignment that happened in British politics. Fundamentally, class used to be the biggest divide. Working class people would vote Labour, Mm. middle class people would vote Conservative, and Mm. that was true for decades. Between 2015 and 2019, that shifted, and instead age became the biggest dividing line. Old people would vote Conservative, young people would vote Labour. Mm. And we saw that pattern play out across the country, which meant certain areas that had traditionally contained a lot of older working class people, to be blunt, moved towards the Conservatives, and places uh, that contained a lot of younger middle class people moved a bit more towards Labour, because that realignment had happened. Now, what we're seeing at the moment is not necessarily that realignment reversing, but the Conservatives going down pretty equally among all voter groups. So sort of the swing away from the Conservatives is fairly uniform. Now, that means that they would lose a lot of those red wall seats. It's not because, you know, that traditional red wall voter that we have in our mind is moving back against the Conservative any more than the average voter. They just happen to be moving back against the Conservatives just as much as the average voter in Britain. And that means that, um, you know, if there were an election tomorrow, Conservatives would lose you know, most, if not all, of those uh, of those seats that we class as red wall seats you, you sort of allude to it slightly there chris but there is a sense that this sort of the way that we view the red wall in itself is flawed i mean i, I think i think i spoke to you chris or perhaps one of your colleagues about this on election night and and went you know going as far as to say actually the red wall doesn't really exist there has been such a shift and a churn in the way that people vote and the demographics that they fall into the idea of the red wall itself is a bit of a misnomer look i'm I mean, yeah, it is just hurting. There's basically, there's a few different phenomenons that are happening at the same time. So the first is the Conservatives went from being about two points ahead in the polls, uh, two point, yeah, being about two points ahead on election day in 2017 to being about 12 points ahead on election day in 2019. The second thing that happened is the re- realignment in politics that I just talked about. The third thing that happened, and this kind of is what we mean by red wall is lots of people vote late, voted Labour for sort of historical reasons. So when you looked at them, they were pretty well off. They were pretty economically secure. They were older, so they had those demographics that would normally make them a Conservative voter. The only reason they were still voting Labour is for historic reasons. They lived in an area, for example, that used to have a mine in it. And they'd say things to you in focus groups like, my dad would roll in his grave if he knew I was voting Labour. Mm. So in all other ways, they look like a Conservative voter, but they sort of were only, yeah, they were still voting Labour for those historic reasons. And in 2019, that phenomenon broke down. So people stopped having that sort of historic loyalty towards the Labour Party. So all three of those phenomenons were happening at the same time. And that led to, you know, this kind of situation where certain seats moved quite dramatically against the Labour Party. And in many cases, they were seats that had voted for the Labour Party for generations. Um, And I think it is important to think about all of those things at the same time. But I think the main thing to note from the polling is like that was a one off trend. It's not continuing. But what's happening is the Conservatives are going down a a lowering tide lowers all ships. Right. The Conservatives are going down pretty equally everywhere now. And that will include in what we call the Red Wall. It will include seats that have disproportionately moved to the Conservatives in recent years. But it'll also include lots of seats across the South, seats like Colchester, seats like Wickham, seats like Milton Keynes, those kind of places. I think the Conservatives are going to find very difficult as well. 
Chris, can I just take you back to 2017? Because in that general election, there was this very remarkable tightening of the polls where mm. Labour came from being very, very far behind under Jeremy Corbyn to being very, very close to Theresa May's Conservative Party in the polls. You were tweeting about this today and you were describing that kind of extraordinary thing where you as pollsters were trying to work out, is this actually happening? Are we actually seeing a tightening this dramatic in, in the weeks before the election. Can, can you take us back back to that period? Because some people might think, well, a similar thing could happen today. You could have the same thing happen in a year's time with, with, with Boris coming back into contention. Yeah, I mean, I've got myself in a bit of hot water today. But I mean, the, the point I was broadly trying to make is it actually links back a bit to that point that we were making, right, mm. about, you know, those voters who are historically loyal to the Labour Party no longer being loyal. That's actually happened pretty much across the board. What we've lost in Britain is this idea of a loyal voter voters who pretty much will always vote the same way any general election. We've got a lot fewer of them than we used to have. Mm. And we've got a lot more of these compared to market voters, people who would be a lot more willing to switch between voters mm. from election to election. Mm. Now, what that basically means is things are a lot more volatile than they used to be. Right. And the first time we saw that play out, this sort of extreme volatility, was in that 2017 election. And that's why I was talking about in my thread earlier, was just what it was like to be a pollster. You know, we'd just come off and getting an election wrong. Yeah. But to be a pollster coming off that period and, you know, seeing polls going from a 24-point Conservative lead to a two-point Conservative lead over a matter of weeks, that, that was a really sort of difficult experience because that's not something that happened before. And that made it sort of quite tricky to do my job for many reasons. The suggestion in your thread, which a lot of people, your Twitter thread that a lot of people have been sharing, is that this tightening was so dramatic, it caught everyone so much by surprise, that there were polls that weren't even released. You talk about one post-debate poll where Corbyn had done very well, and the actual poll wasn't even released at all because it was too good for Labour. I know you don't want to talk about this in any depth, but can you tell us why it was today that you came out with these these allegations and, and how they've kind of gone down? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I just wanted to talk about that kind of experience because, you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to talk ill particularly of my my former colleagues at YouGov. I think it was a it's a brilliant organisation. Mm. and you know, They gave me my first job in polling. But mm. this kind of experience of, you know, this this pressure we felt under mm. seeing this, you know, phenomenon and trends that had never happened before, mm. you know, led to polling companies um, making decisions that, you know, I think probably weren't in the best interests of the industry or the debate that was happening at the time. You know, making changes to methodologies in the middle of an election campaign and other things as well. The, the thread that I spoke about today was basically just expressing, you know, those difficulties that I, I, I think we face. And I think it's important because I think it's important for two reasons. Firstly, mm. Because as we look back over that 2017 election hindsight, it's important to understand what was happening at the time and to understand uh, this trend in full. But secondly, it's sort of only by thinking about these things in hindsight that you can make sure you avoid having these problems in the future. So you asked before about what if this happens next time around? Yeah, I think that yeah, we're a lot less likely to end up in that situation if we reflect on what's gone wrong in the past. And I think now being, being able to appreciate that these things are a lot more likely to happen, they're a lot more likely to happen because the electorate is so much more volatile, mm. will mean that polling will be a lot better in the future. Some people will think, listening to this, can I trust the polling that I see if there are kind of calls happening to the chief executives of polling companies, methodologies are being shifted? I mean, some people will see your thread today and think, God, this industry isn't as sort of objective as you would hope. You know, most people in the polling industry, I like to think myself included, mm. will you know go to great lengths to try and make sure that we're doing things right and we're trying to be 
as accurate as we possibly can. And the biggest driving force between almost everything that we do is to make sure that polling is as accurate as it is possible to be. Um, and that's what I sort of dedicate my life doing. I talked in the thread about how I'd wake up in the middle of the night and think about ways that our methodology might be wrong. And have a look at I still do that now. Yeah. I mean, I know that that makes me a weirdo, but we're always, you know, we're almost always trying to be right. There's things that sort of can bias, bias us. Yeah. Um, and it's important to try and correct for them, but almost always trying to make sure that our polls are as accurate as possible. And the vast majority of the time, yeah. polling is incredibly accurate in this country. You know, I could reel off a list of, mm. you know, the nine out of ten times that we've got it right mm. um and you know it is important to remember that as well but also it's very important to be aware of our biases and the things that can can cause us to make decisions which you know maybe aren't, aren't the best yeah. and, and chris i know you don't want to be drawn on on the the, the back and forth with YouGov, but obviously i have to put this uh, yeah. statement from YouGov to you in the last couple of hours uh, that they say that chris curtis's allegation that we suppressed a poll because the results were too positive about labor is incorrect uh, they say that uh, it was clear that the sample of people who watched the debate significantly overrepresented labor uh, and their voters from the previous election they said that we take our responsibilities as a research organization seriously and we couldn't have published a poll from a skewed sample that favored any party and they repeat no serious polling organization would have published this I mean, I really, really don't want to get in a back and forth with my previous employer. I just don't think it's in the interest of anybody. But, I, you know, I would say that, you know, I followed, you know, pretty rigorous method methodological rules. You know, I spent the vast majority of my life thinking about polling methodology to the point where it's probably slightly... <laughs> Um, and you know, I, I, I conducted that poll to the same methodology that, that YouGov uses all the time. And YouGov's released other polls since that use that that same methodology. So, if I was to speculate as to what they're talking about, it would be that there was a disproportionate number. I'm speculating here, but mm. it would be that, that the debate was watched disproportionately by Labour voters. Yeah. So, if you actually take the people in the sample, sorry, this is very nerdy. Quite <laughs> enjoying it though. The actually, people in the sample who had watched the debates, there was a few more Labour people in there than there were Tories or whatever. But anyway, the main finding from the story that was interesting was actually about Conservative voters. It was nothing to do with Labour voters at all. It was to do with the fact that there was a big chunk of Conservative voters, right. and ultimately it was those who ended up deciding the election who said that they thought Jeremy Corbyn was won, had won. And that was why I thought this was a really surprising finding. One final question, coming back to the, the themes we talked about at the beginning. We've had this big um, week in Westminster. The Conservatives have, have kept hold of, of Boris Johnson as their leader and as the Prime Minister. Would you, given, given how, how much you watch public opinion, would you expect the big shift we've had over the past six months, this, this, this voter disaffection with the Conservatives after Partygate, would you think that that will be the last big shift we'll see before the next general election? Or should our listeners kind of be primed for, for further drama like that, further moving around on, on the needle? Um, I think there'll be a lot more moving around. I mean, you know, one thing, for example, that could lead to a big shift in the polls is a new Conservative leader. Yeah. You know, if you actually look back through history, the biggest shifts in polling have often happened after a new leader has come into place. And that's before the electorate became historically volatile. So, you know, if the Conservatives do put a new leader in place, yeah. you know, Lord alone knows what kind of impact that might have. Um, Chris, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today and to get some of your insights uh, on what's going on in the uh, the minds and the hearts of, uh, of the voters in the north of England. Thank you, Chris. We'll speak again, I hope. No, that's all right. Thank you for having me. 
hell of a day to be speaking to Chris Curtis, isn't it, uh, Yoshi? I didn't realise when you said this morning we were going to speak to a pollster that it would be the pollster who has blown up the entire internet, or at least political Twitter in the UK, about these, you know, these decisions that were made in, 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 in that election 2017. I mean, the, those tweets this morning that he sent, they really went viral um, among sort of political people. They're really incendiary claims, you know, really that they, they make you think, OK, there's more sort of um, human input in these in, in these in these polls and, and more pressure being brought to bear than than maybe you would like. It's fascinating to speak to him about the stuff we were going to speak to him about, but also to hear about that. Mm, really, really interesting. Really interesting. Uh, and I, I think a story that will rumble for a little while. OK, elsewhere, Yoshi, let's uh, let's bring things close to home. And uh, well, one of our favourite topics, aside from the uh, platform at Picket of the Gardens, uh, is the clean air zone. And there's been a development on the clean air zone this week, and, and particularly Andy Burnham's red lines, Yoshi. Yeah, I actually got an email from one of my friends this week who clearly hadn't read the whole Mill newsletter. He'd only read the headline. But he said, because our headline was something like, is Manchester going to get a city centre clean air zone? And my friend was saying, is that the end of Daisy, which is the name of my car? It's my, I have a 1990 Mercedes, which is a, probably a, a huge gas guzzler and environment ruiner. <laughs> um, but anyway, he was like, is that the end of Daisy? Then I was like, no, it's not. It actually, this clean air zone is going to be vans and, and commercial vehicles and all that sort of thing. So my car's safe. But, but also a really good way to find out who does and doesn't read the full of plant something in there that gets Abs- the text. Absolute giveaway. Um, <laughs> this clean air zone saga is going on and on and on. I remember being at Andy Burnham's manifesto launch when he was running for re-election as, as mayor. Was that last year? Time flies. Oh, good yeah. Lord. Yeah, yeah, 21, year. yeah. And he was sort of very clear about the fact we will not have a congestion zone in Greater Manchester, i.e. we will not have regular customers in their cars being charged like they are in London. And that's, I think, to do with the sensitivity there is in Greater Manchester after the huge defeat for a congestion charge proposal just before the, the, the financial crash. And so he was very clear on that. And he was kind of like, and, you know, the government is saying um, there's going to need to be a clean air zone. We'll look at what they propose. So already at that point, you could tell Andy Burnham's team is very cognizant of the political risks around this kind of um, proposal and the sensitivities around it in Greater Manchester. But what eventually came forward was a very wide-reaching plan of charging people in a very wide area across Greater Manchester. And as we know, it caused massive upset in places like Stockport, places like Bolton, places particularly, not to generalise too much, but where white van men or tradesmen who who use their vehicle for work were suddenly going to have very hefty charges if their vehicles didn't um, cohere with, with, with the new rules on clean air. So what Andy Burnham's been trying to do since, since it was delayed, this scheme, is put the political responsibility for it back on the government. And so, you know, why should I take the flack for something if I'm effectively being told to do it by central government? Central government has kind of been saying, well, you came up with this very broad plan. And now what the government is saying is, we think it should be a city centre clean air zone. So there should be charges for vans and buses and commercial vehicles, but it should be reduced. It's like they, they reckon 90% reduced on the original plan, so right, bring it right down to the city centre. Andy Burnham's now saying there should be no charges at all, it should be based on incentives, um, and that Greater Manchester has to come up with some evidence that like an incentives-based system would work. So this whole thing has been an utter mess. It's been a long-running saga, and... This is sort of the latest thing, this letter from the government talking about this 90% reduction down to the city centre. So, you know, we'll, we'll um, I'm sure, come back to it again. Can I, can I just ask you, Yoshi, just very, very briefly? Because 
there is a lot of political fallout to this, isn't there? You know, Andy Burnham's had a relatively solid ride as the mayor of Greater Manchester. And along came this really contentious issue that the government and, and, and uh, you know, those perhaps who are politically uh, on, on, uh, you know, opposed to Andy Burnham have really made his issue. What's the sort of political fallout from this in Greater Manchester likely to be? Well, I, I, I suspect that the damage it's doing to Andy Burnham's sort of reputation as a retail politician who really understands, you know, what voters are thinking and stuff, I suspect that is more relevant than any, like, big sweeping change it's going to make to Greater Manchester's politics. But it's been a political hot potato, no doubt. And I suspect Andy Burnham didn't see the anger coming. The fact that this scheme was, uh, was, was being launched in the year of a, a cost of living crisis didn't make it easier. The fact that some of these cars that are compliant with clean air rules were much harder to get hold of because of all the supply chain issues we had because of a pandemic. So I think the, there was a, perhaps a bit of political naivety on, on the part of Greater Manchester's leaders, not just Andy Burnham, but I think there were also some very bad luck there. I can't see it sort of... Uh, massively changing Greater Manchester politics. I mean, some people were expecting Labour councils to lose lots of seats in areas where there was a lot of anger over the cars. I, I know that there were people out on the doorstep really wondering, are we going to take a kicking over the cars in the, in the most recent uh, local elections? There doesn't seem to be much evidence of that, actually. So it, it might be one of those ones where there's an enormous amount of anger from a relatively narrow group of people. There is, a, for example, one very big Facebook group that, that, that gives a, a lot of grief to Andy Burnham. I don't think it's going to have a much broader implications than that. OK, well, well, we'll come back to it for sure. If Andy Burnham's feeling a bit stressed by it, he could unwind in the city centre this weekend, Yoshi, and I think he probably will, actually. I imagine he will pop up at one or more of these gigs. Uh, he likes to get in amongst it with this sort of stuff, doesn't it? Massive weekend in Manchester this weekend. Shall we rattle through? So we've got Ed Sheeran's four-night residence at the Etihad Stadium. Nice. Alicia Keys is at the Auto Arena on Saturday. Uh, the Killers are playing Emirates Old Trafford, which is an enormous venue, a massive, massive gig for them. And then we've got Park Life Festival happening up the road at Heaton Park. I think on Saturday alone, uh, 200,000 music fans are expected to descend on the city, which is extraordinary, really. And which one are you going to? I am going to be escaping to London. <laughs> the side, how about you? I will be at a posh wedding in Cornwall. <laughs> Good. So, right in amongst it. Men of the people as we are. I think my recommendation for anyone living in Greater Manchester is to rent out your flat on Airbnb <laughs> as soon as possible because all these hotels are full, aren't they? Yeah, so there's, I, I think I'm right in saying there's 100% capacity hotel-wise across June. There was certainly 100% capacity the other night at 1.30am when I arrived back in the city after the bank holiday weekend. I'd lost my key. Very weird, actually. My key had come off the key ring, which never happens to me. But anyway, 1.30am, I'm walking down Dale Street trying to find a hotel to stay in because it's much too late to, like, you know, wake up my friends and, and ask them to stay. And, yeah, hotel after hotel after... You know, I'm talking budget ones, like I was trying the Holiday Inn or the Premier Inn, whatever it is. And they were all closed, they were all closed. I ended up in the Malmaison, you know. Wow. Which is like... <laughs> wasn't the game plan, but um, so I can personally attest to the fact that hotels are extremely full. Yes, and expensive as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I'm not your wallet. <laughs> uh, so enjoy it this weekend. Uh, Sasha Lord, who's the founder of Park Life, he's also Greater Manchester's nighttime economy advisor, uh, has been really bigging up this weekend as a, as, a, as a big, big, big one for the city, kind of post-lockdown, you know, bringing people back to big music ven uh, venues and events and stuff. And also they're building another venue mm, they called are. The Co-op. I think it's called The Co-op Arena. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this kind of positioning of Manchester as a place where 
you go for massive events, things like Warehouse Project, things like these these massive pop concerts. I mean, Manchester traditionally had that reputation because the MEN, as it was, the MEN arena was like the biggest arena in the country, I think. Um, and so it's always had this, but it's a pretty good thing because you have people from coming all over the north, all over the Midlands, into Manchester, spending, I think, spending money on other things as well. Like you often meet someone like for a drink, a friend who's in town, and they're actually there to see like New Order the next day or whatever. So it's obviously really good for the for the uh, Manchester economy. Yeah, and I think this idea that you you have two or three big arena size events in the city on any one night mm. is going to become regular, regular fixture. Mm. That won't be podcast worthy news. That's just going to be the the rhythm of the nightlife in Greater Manchester. Mm. Um, okay, uh, before we give you some recommendations of things to do across the weekend, if you can uh, face the the, the rammed trams, um, let's have a look at the newsroom, Yoshi, and what you're working on. What is cooking, my friend? Well, first of all, apologies to uh, podcast listeners because we lied to them. We said that the um, the Royal Exchange story we've been working on would come out over the weekend, but we did the podcast on it, but we didn't actually publish the story. So the, the story is coming out this week. It's just uh, it's blown up from one and a half thousand words to three thousand words. But um, Harry Shookman is in the office right now editing it, and it will be um, it'll be out there soon. Um, I don't know if people care about the under the bonnet stuff here, but sometimes when you do a story like this, you offer the organisation that you are writing about a right reply. I mean, you always offer them a right reply. The way that tends to work is you send an email with 10 or 12 bullet points and say, here's what we're going to write. And I felt that I had not given them enough time. I think I gave them, you know, maybe two-thirds of a day on the day before the bank holiday. And I I remember thinking, no, that's not enough time. Not for 12 questions. That might be okay for two questions. So I was like, I'll give them Monday, I'll give them Tuesday. They've now had, I think, a, a, a healthy, sufficient amount of time to respond. So now I think it's fair to, to publish. But just to explain the sort of boring technicalities behind why we didn't publish that story. Great. Okay. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing it in full. And if you want to get um, a bit of a briefing on what's happening at the Royal Exchange, that's in your podcast feed, just a little bit further down uh, from last weekend's episode. And if you're not going to Ed Sheeran or Alicia Keys or The Killers or Part Life Festival this weekend, Yoshi, what else is there to do in Greater Manchester? Well, very different vibe. But Danny, who is obviously our resident photographer and, and, and deals with all our pictures, she says this Amazonia show at the Science and Industry Museum, which is about, I think, think it's amazing photographs that show the threats of the Amazon and also the, the people who live in the Amazon. She said it's one of the best exhibitions she's ever been to. It's this um, photographer called Sebastião uh, Salgado. Apparently these, these photos at the Science and Industry Museum are absolutely phenomenal. And Danny's actually going to write a little piece for us um, about it, but I, that sounds like a, a one that's well worth going to. Lovely. Okay, my nod for the weekend is uh, Friday, so it's pretty soon. Professor David Olasoga is at Manchester Central Library uh, to discuss statue wars. He is a brilliant uh, historian, David Olasoga, and uh, he is he's one of those people who sort of really cleverly and articulately unpicks culture war issues and sort of explains them and lays them out and gives them some, you know, removes the heat and gives them some sense. He's talking about statues and why they matter. He was also recently an expert witness for the defence trial of the uh, the Colston Four in Bristol as well, so he'll be no doubt sharing some reflections from that headline-grabbing trial. Uh, the reason that I mentioned that, by the way, and culture war issues, I suppose, and you know, things that are culturally sensitive, is because on our weekend edition of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill this week, we're joined by Esme Ward, who is the director at Manchester Museum. She is a fascinating woman, really uh, enthusiastic about her craft, 
craft and her industry. And she talks to us about some of those sort of difficult, sometimes difficult, sometimes easy, actually, questions that uh, the cultural institutions and this particular cultural institution is asking it itself about what's in it and the place that it holds in our community. So we'll get a deep dive into what's happening at Manchester Museum and its big renovation as well on Sunday in your podcast feed Esme Ward. Really, really worth a listen. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe for more big news stories, in-depth deep dives and things to do in and around Greater Manchester. Manchestermill.co.uk is where you subscribe. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe and leave a review on this podcast as well. So it's in your feed every week and other people can find it too. For now, Yoshi, thank you. Thanks. See you on Sunday.